Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the flood. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock good morning everyone i am obligated i have to start my message today by saying happy mom's day to all of you moms grandmoms do we have any great grandmoms here today I see one, two, three, a handful of great grandmoms even here with four. Yeah, there we go. It is definitely one of my missions. I'm going to get this church to clap more often, okay? So anytime you feel the spirit saying it's time to clap, just go for it. I'm okay with that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Listen, moms mean so much to all of us for different reasons. And it is a little bit of a stereotype because I know everyone's, uh, maybe mom's situation was a little bit different. But for the vast majority of us, it's our mothers who were there for us, who cooked for us. Right? It's our mothers who cleaned for us. Maybe it's our mothers who were the first example that we can remember of unconditional love. Right? As they would kiss our boo-boos, even when we did something not so smart to get those boo-boos in the first place. Maybe it was your, your mother who taught you how to read. At the end of the day, for most of us, our mothers are an amazing example of how someone can shine. I also think if you were to go to, to many, many Christians, I, I think the vast majority of Christians might tell you that they also first learned their faith from their mom, watching her example as they learned at her knee. And again, I know a lot of this is stereotyping. I know moms absolutely do come in all different shapes and sizes, right? All different types of moms. There's first-time moms, and there's the grizzled veterans who have been through this a time or two before. There's stay-at-home moms, and, and there's working moms. There are single moms, and there are married moms. One thing I do know is that there is no such thing as a perfect mom. I would love to tell you here today, live on YouTube, that my mother was perfect. My mother's been here. She's visited. She's a very nice lady. But let's be honest. My mother is just human. So she cannot claim to be perfection. I would love to stand here before the whole church today and get the brownie points that would come to me if I stood here and said that I married a woman who is the perfect mother. But even Linda is still just human, right? She, she still has flaws. <laughs> Linda, you two are human. I love you to death, but thank you. Listen, this isn't a sexist thing because I'll be the first one to stand up here and tell you that I am also not the perfect father. I also am human. I also have flaws. I also mess up. There are plenty of times where I sit down at the end of the night and I put my head into my hands and I say, I am really learning as I go, aren't I? For moms, though, it's a little bit different. Moms sometimes aren't able to let that lack of perfection roll off their shoulders quite so easily. Many women I've met, they hold themselves as mothers to this, this amazing standard of perfection because moms have a lot to live up to. 
Moms have a lot of pressure put on them. And this pressure that they feel to be perfect, it can come from all kinds of different places. I think one of the places that this pressure comes from on mothers over the last maybe 70 years or so are from the, the, the TV moms that we invite into our home each and every week, these, these sitcom moms that we've grown up and maybe have, have kind of set this standard for us of what a mother should look like or what a mother should act like. The, the first name that came to mind, uh, and I'll date myself a little bit, is Claire Huxtable. Right, Claire Huxtable was a mom of five. Claire Huxtable always looked put together, had a nice outfit on. She was always dressed so sharply. I don't remember any episode where Claire was ever rocking a sweatsuit and a messy bun and didn't have any makeup on. Claire did pretty well for herself, too, didn't she? I mean, well, first off, she married a doctor. She herself was a practicing attorney. But Claire was always in charge of her home, right? Her, her kids always came first. No matter what Rudy or Theo or Vanessa got themselves into, Claire was always there, and she was always available for her kids. We can't forget Mrs. Brady, right? Mrs. Brady, a mom of three girls, all of them had hair of yellow or hair of gold, the youngest one even in curls, a single mom raising those three girls, by the way, until this one day when she met this fellow. And he had a few boys of his own, four men living all together, but they were all alone. Now, Mrs. Brady, she had more than just a hunch that one day they would somehow form a family, and that's how they... Exactly. Man, Mrs. Brady sure did navigate the potential pitfalls of, of, of a blended family pretty well, didn't she? If my memory serves me, I think she even had the time and the resources available to her that she planned a Hawaiian vacation once for this family of eight, didn't she? Cut from the same vein, we have Shirley Partridge. Shirley was a widowed mother of five. But did that defeat her? No, she bought an old school bus, she painted it, she traveled around the country showing off her kids' talents, making the most of the situation that life had handled, handed to her. Some TV moms I need to skip over because they don't help me make my case, so we're not going to discuss the Roseannes or the Peggy Bundys this morning. Uh, but how about Kitty Foreman? Kitty was one of my favorite TV moms, a little bit more relevant, a little bit newer of a TV mom. Now, Kitty's life was not perfect. Kitty married a stubborn, hothead of a man. If you've ever seen this show, you know that Kitty's only daughter, she was a lost cause. And Kitty's son was a bit of a well-intentioned fool. She was a full-time nurse in the emergency room at the local hospital, but not an episode ever went by where there was not a hot breakfast on the table for her family every morning. There was never an episode where you would find an errant, dirty sock just laying around on the ground. And again, if you've ever seen this show, you know that Kitty laughed far more often than she ever cried. And the list of these TV moms that we hold this standard to, it can go on and on. A June Cleaver... Samantha from Bewitched, Edith Bunker, Lorelai Gilmore, uh, one of my favorites, again, Jill Taylor. You remember Jill Taylor, married to Tim the Toolman Taylor? That was time. Oh, 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 oh. All of these examples that are beamed into our home, they contribute to this pressure that builds upon moms as, as they set this standard in their mind of, of what a mom should look like or what a mom should act like. And it can't be easy. So guys, I hope you are taking good care of all of the moms in your life today. 
I hope you are remembering maybe to get them a little something for raising you, maybe a little something for raising your kids. Uh, I was proud of myself this year. Usually Linda's the one that remembers to make, car, make sure cards and things are sent out. I actually remembered this year to send my mom a card. This is not a joke. This is the real card I sent my, my mother this year. It says, Mom, I'm sorry for all the really dumb things I did when I was younger. If it makes you feel any better, you only know about half of them. <laughs> so, Mom, when you get home from your little vacation, that card's waiting for you in your mailbox. That was fun, but, but the truth is it's really, really hard to be a mom. The truth is that maybe the pressure to be a mom can really, really seem overwhelming at some times. And it's not just because Mrs. Brady set a very high standard. I think the truth is that raising tiny humans and keeping them alive, all while, while you're trying to instill values in them, When you're answering, when your name is called 3,000 times a day as you hear, Mom, 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 come from the other room. And then maybe as they grow up, you think it's going to get easier, but it doesn't. Because now you're just watching them make bad decisions. You're watching them maybe do things that you go, I don't want you to do that. I know how this is going to end for you. And I think all of it is really, really stressful. Our mothers of today, they don't even have to just keep up with the moms that they see on sitcoms. Because at least your brain can give you some sort of logical basis to fall back there that you can remember that those moms only look so perfect because they have writers making them look perfect. Right? Logically, you can at least say in those situations, you can remember that the Cosby show was filmed in front of a live studio audience, but, but it was filmed on a soundstage. It was never filmed in a home that was lived in. Our young moms today, they now also compete with social media. Right there in the palm of their hands, they have this blessing and this curse of being able to look into the lives of all of these other moms from all different backgrounds and situations, all of them always willing to show you the best 5% of their life. And sometimes, as you're scrolling, it can become too much. Your anxiety that was probably already very high can get pushed over the edge as you're scrolling and you see a, a mom who has taught her five-year-old daughter Mandarin as your five-year-old is still drawing on the walls with crayons. You can find this mom who, who maybe runs a successful business and also finds time to homeschool her children. You, you find another mom who she makes all of her kids' clothes from scratch. Another mom who's eliminated gluten and sugar from her kids' diets as you're handing them a popsicle as you're looking at this. You can find one mom who's convinced she's smarter than everybody else because her kids have never been vaccinated against anything. And the very next mom is going to tell you that she is smarter because her kids have had every jab that's ever been available to them. You can find moms who have college funds started for their two-year-olds, and of course there will never ever be a shortage on social media of moms who are willing to share photos from their $20,000 Disney vacation with you either. And as you do this, it all makes you feel anxious about your performance, about what you're doing, about the standard that you're setting. It's not exclusively a female problem. I fall prey to the same things. I, I love going camping with my family. I try to make the time to do that. 
But recently I started following um, the, the, this page on Instagram from a, a single mom and her daughter who live out in Macomb County who have made it their their, their uh, uh, goal, I guess I should say, to visit every state park in the state of Michigan. All of them. And as I'm scrolling through her pictures, I'm going, well, am I doing enough? Am I making enough time for these kids while I have them at home and with me? Could I be doing more? And, and as I start to feel anxious about that fact, I remember that it is very hard to shine when I am anxious. I have to remind myself that it is calm, peaceful people that are going to shine the brightest. So in honor of Mother's Day today, we're going to remind all of us, but especially we're going to remind the moms among us today that it's Jesus himself who said, do not be anxious about your life. It's there in chapter 6 of Matthew, I promise we're going to get there. But as we unpack this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today, I do have to make sure we set realistic expectations, right? I don't think that you are going to leave here today with all of your anxieties cured. But what I hope that, that my Mother's Day present can be to some of you moms out there today is that you're going to leave here today with a renewed reminder of who is actually in charge of whose hands it is that you are safely held in. And for the kids and for the dads that are here today, I've got something for you as well. If you leave church this Sunday afternoon with a mom or a wife who is maybe just 10% less anxious than she was yesterday, I've given you a gift as well. Amen? All right. So let's open up today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. And first we're just going to look at verse 25. In verse 25 it says... Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Um, when we teach here from the pulpit, we're, we're typically using the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV Version. If you're using the, the King James, or you're using the NIV, or the NASB, your translation may look a little bit different. In many of those other translations, instead of using the word anxious, that, that word is substituted with the word worry. Both are completely acceptable. The, the definition of the Greek word that is actually translated to worry in most of those other translations, the definition of, the definition of that word is to be anxious about. So anxiety, worry, the same thing. Uh, there's a quote from this fellow named R.H. Muntz. Uh, Muntz was a, a New Testament scholar. Uh, he was an author of many books. Uh, interestingly enough, he also served as a dive bomber pilot during World War II. I mean, you want to talk about a little bit of an a, a anxiety-filled job that he had. But Mr. Muntz said this. He said, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. It's a quote that's always stuck with me. Because here is essentially what, what Muntz is saying. He's saying that anxiety itself, it's our sin nature showing and causing us to doubt God. He, he says that worry and anxiety is the practical expression of our doubt in God. He's reminding us that who it is that should be anxious, it's the atheist. 
right, who should be anxious and full of that worry. It's the person who it's all sink or swim. It's only purely based on their own performance. The weight of the entire world is on their shoulders as there is nothing else out there that is greater or beyond them. Worry and anxiety, it's something that what we should see, we should see it less in Christianity and we should see it more often in many of the foreign and the pagan religions that we see all around us. These religions where people live in in constant fear of their deity, where to them their God is smiteful, is vengeful, is some kind of megalomaniac who constantly needs to be appeased. Because if you serve a God like that, you certainly should be anxious. You better remember to say the right prayer at the right time and face the right direction. You better make sure that you remember to throw that virgin into the volcano. Because if you don't, if you don't get it all perfectly right at the perfectly right time and do everything that you need to do to appease this angry God, the rain might not come. Or too much rain might come. Your crops, they may shrivel up and die, or or disease may come upon you and your village. Again, anxious people do not shine. It is calm people, people who are confident and full of peace, who will shine the brightest. Clearly, anxiety and worry are not selling points. You do not reach the lost with a message of come join us because we are always just one false step away from being smitten or smoten or smited by our God. What Jesus now is going to remind us, though, is that there are necessities of life. The most basic of those necessities that we have in life is is the ability to eat, the ability to drink. It reminds us of a necessity that we have to have clothing to to protect ourselves from the elements. These are things that naturally it's very easy for us to worry about. Because if we do not have them, if we don't have them in the proper supply at the proper time, the ramifications of not having food to eat is very, very real. And Jesus, in this sermon, he addresses this very real need that we have for food. If we look at verses 26 and 27, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Again, it's food that is probably the most basic necessity that all living things have to maintain life. The fact that Jesus uses that as an example, I think, puts much into perspective the the things that we are anxious about often. I also, again, I make a little bit of an assumption here. I've gotten to know you, you guys pretty well. I know that we come from maybe varying different levels of financial security. Okay, I think that's fair to say. I know that there's those among us who are very stable. And I know that there's those among us who live paycheck to paycheck. But for most of us, when we live in this country, when we live in America, we don't go to bed hungry very often. 
Now, we may not all get the chance to eat whatever we want whenever we want it, but not many of us, and I hope none of us who are here today, wake up each morning and do not know if there will be enough sustenance to get them through the day. Again, honestly, there better not be any of you here that are in that position, because that means that whether it be out of embarrassment right, or just not wanting to speak up, maybe out of pride, that you have not come and you have not shared that need with us. So if there is anyone here who is suffering from food insecurity, who you do not know if you have enough for yourself or for your family, you need to send an email, you need to pick up the phone, you need to come visit us during office hours. We are a church family and we are here to help you. Moving on. The, the story Jesus frames for us here, though, is certainly an anxiety producing situation, as we're reminded of the need for food. And he asks us to consider the, the, the lovely chirping songbirds that just seem to have all of a sudden exploded all around Rochester Hills. The, the, the trees come back to life and the birds come back to life at the same time. The, the number of songbirds sometimes that we can hear in, in this particular area of the world is amazing. Uh, if you spend a little bit of time at the, the Tingley's house and you watch their bird feeders in their backyard, you'll see birds that you never even knew lived in Michigan before. There's so many birds, but birds don't build barns to store their food in, do they? Right, birds don't farm. Birds don't have a deep freezer in their garage that they can store months worth of extra food in. And saying these things, no one would consider that to be slanderous of birds either. We know, we watch that the, these birds, they are incredibly industrious. If you've ever watched a bird work tirelessly to collect supplies and build a nest, you know this. If you've ever watched how hard a bird will work to secure its next meal, you already know this. I always think of the robins in my backyard who, who descend into the grass the moment the rain stops in search of earthworms from nowhere. You don't have any idea that these birds are there. The rain stops and instantly your backyard is full away, filled with robins pecking away at the ground. They're searching for the abundance that God has brought to them. What you don't ever see is any fat, plump robins who are sitting in their nest, refusing to leave, refusing to go to the ground with their mouth open, hoping that a worm is just going to crawl up the tree and magically fall into their mouth. So we have to understand, yes, God does provide. All we have comes from God, but we, we don't want to look at this piece of Scripture as a call from Jesus encouraging us to be bums. Okay, This is not a call from Jesus telling us to, to not go out and provide for ourselves or for our families, but what it is is asking us to acknowledge that no matter how hard working, no matter how industrious that bird might be, that bird is completely dependent upon the whims of God, upon the whims of nature. Birds are very limited in how much of their fruitfulness they can actually control. If the rains don't come, the worms don't come out. Right? There's no backup plan for the robins. And instinctually, we should then think about how much God has provided man with. How much more God has given us the ability to do and control than he has the robin. Right? We can farm. We can prepare and stockpile food. We can and we do exercise some semblance and some control over the natural world around us in these ways. Right? For us living in modern day America, 
we don't go hungry if the rains don't come, do we? We also don't freeze if winter happens to show up a little bit early either. We even get ample warning if, if high winds or if floodwaters are about to arrive. But without all of this, the robins, they still survive. Each spring, they're still going to return to my backyard. They're going to continue to be pecking away at my grass. <clears throat> we continue on verses 28 through 30. It says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I love Jesus' sarcasm. It's always one of my favorite things, and I think that's what we see when we see Jesus addressing the crowd, and he says, O you of little faith. We all agree that birds do less than humans to prepare and to care for themselves. Birds only can control so much. But now Jesus shows us the wildflowers, and wildflowers do even less than birds do. A wildflower grows wherever the seed falls. It has no choice of where it is going to put down roots. A wildflower is completely dependent upon the sun to, to rise and to warm its leaves. There's no nest to fly back to if it does not. The wildflower is completely dependent upon the rains to come and to moisten their roots that they can't just fly over to the local birdbath. If, if the rains don't come, if the sun is too warm, the flower simply withers and dies. The flower has no recourse. By design, design, I should say, God has created these things to be extremely temporary. A man might live 70 or 80, or if we're lucky, 90 years. A bird might get four or five seasons upon this earth, but wildflowers are here today and they are gone in the blink of an eye. We see this in our gardens often as we wait all winter for those first tulips to spring forward from the ground, and we anxiously await for that burst of color to appear in our yards, and one glorious morning it happens. And then before you know it, you blink, and those vibrant colors have faded. The obvious point that God in his infinite wisdom and authority dressed those flowers so beautifully, even if for just such a short period of time, even for something that many might say is an insignificant amount of time. And if he has done this, do you not think that he will provide for you? From here on out in this chapter, uh, Jesus' tone changes. He, he's going to stop speaking in story or parable, and he's going to begin to give commands to those who are listening to him. Starting in verse 31 through 34, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." I want to remind you again that Jesus is making these comments to people who have come and they've gathered on this hillside and they've come from far and wide. And 
same commandment that he would have taught if it was only his 12 closest disciples that were sitting there in front of him that day. The first thing he, he teaches, the first thing he commands is do not be anxious about what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will wear. The second command, and these aren't in order of importance, obviously, but the second command is seek first the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Again, we have this crowd of people. They've traveled from near and far. People have possibly traveled days and days in the hopes that they would hear a word from this great new teacher they have heard about, this great new miracle worker who, who, who rumors have been swirling about. The vast majority of people who would have come and gathered on that hillside would have never met Jesus before. The vast majority of them would have come based on second-hand accounts of what he had done. But based upon these second-hand accounts of what they had heard, they, they packed up what they had, and they headed out for Galilee. It should not be lost on us that the men and the women who, who were actually there at this moment, the ones who had the opportunity to hear this amazing sermon preached live, they had already done the three commands that Jesus gave. I'm sure that they gathered up supplies for their trip. But not knowing how far they would have to go and not knowing how long they would be there for, there was no way that they could be assured that they were packing enough to eat. There was no way that they could know if they were bringing enough clothing with them for the trip, but still, they went. And no matter what their motivation was, whether they, they came that day for healing or for teaching or just out of a pure curiosity, they were there that day because they were seeking the kingdom of God. They left behind whatever it was that they had going on at home, and, and whether they left for one day or let, whether they left for many days, they stopped and they said, everything else that is happening in my life can wait. I have to go. I have to see what God is doing through this man, Jesus. They set out on the road. They did not have an Airbnb reservation in Galilee. They prepared for what they could, and then they headed off into tomorrow, unsure of what it would bring. Here's the question that struck me. Is can you imagine being the one who stayed at home, who stayed behind because your worry and your anxiety was too much to bear? Can you imagine your friends, your neighbors, they're packing up and they're excited that they're going to go see this man who, who some are saying he might be the Messiah? This is the man who we've heard the stories about, about all the healings that have been happening. This is the man who John the Baptist told us, this is who you've been waiting for. We've heard that he's in Galilee. They invite you. They say, come on, join me. Come with me. We're going to go find him. We're going to hear what this man has to say. They tell you all the stories. You've heard all the rumors yourself but you decide that you're going to stay behind because, I mean, let's just be practical, the risk, it's too great. See, it's in this moment that your worry and your anxiety clouds your mind and you start to think to yourself, if I drop everything I'm doing and head to Galilee, who's going to tend my fields for me? 
Who's going to manage the shop while I'm gone? You know, that really is a long way to walk, and, and my hip hasn't been feeling very good lately. I don't think I have enough supplies at home in, in the pantry. I mean, I could walk all the way there, and by the time I get there, this Jesus fellow, he could already be gone. Or even worse, what if I get there, he's still there, and he ends up just being another con man, con man because I've been burnt before. So, so what you do in that moment is you decide your anxiety wins and you decide the risk is too great, your worry is too much. The anxiety of what might go wrong overwhelms you. And you stay right where you are, cemented to the ground. You think naively that because you did not go, you think you have some greater semblance of control over what your tomorrow might bring. You think the outcome of your life is now in your hands because you did not take the risk. Your anxiety has won. And you have lost because you have lost the chance to stand in the presence of Jesus. You've lost the opportunity to hear him speak with your own ears. The opportunity is fleeting. It passes you by. Jesus' words also, they do not promise that if you say yes and you decide to pursue the kingdom above all else, that everything is going to be okay. He is not promising you that there will not be loss, and he is not promising you that you will not suffer. There are most definitely Christians all over the globe today that do not have enough clothing to wear. There are Christians all over the globe who will go to sleep hungry tonight. There are Christians all over the globe that, that are going to watch their children be malnourished. We have friends with us from the other side of the world today that can attest to this. Right? Jesus' promise is not seeking the kingdom of God first will bring you immediate provision. What his promise that he makes to us, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but through his entire ministry, is that this world, it is fleeting. That it is no different than the flower of the field. The same way the flower's life feels fleeting in comparison to the life of a man, our time on earth is fleeting compared to the eternity in heaven that is offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The question is, do you understand that that is the offer that he is making? Do you understand that God's provision for you goes so much further than your need for food or your need for shelter? That God's promise to you, God's provision to you is an offer of eternal peace, of eternal safety. He's already unlocked for us how we can accept this peace, how we can quiet our anxiety and our worry. He's given us a cheat sheet in front of us right here. Go back, look at Matthew 6, 26, uh, the, the way that that verse ends. It ends in a question. I think we can put it back up on the screen as well. Jesus asks the crowd that has gathered, he says, are you not of more value than they? And that's the question that I pose to you this morning, hoping for an honest answer. Again, not the answer that you know you're supposed to give. We all know that we're supposed to nod our head in agreement and say, yes, of course I know that I'm God's most precious creation. Of course, I've heard since, since Sunday school when I was little that I was created in God's image. So yes, I am more valuable than a bird. I am more valuable than a flower. But I don't care about the answer that you, were, you would give if I were to stick a microphone in front of your face this morning. What I care about is the answer that you would give as you stand in front of your bathroom mirror each morning when you awake. 
I care about the answer that you would give to those voices in your head as you scroll through your Instagram and you look at how well everyone else is doing, as you see how smart everyone else is, how loved everyone else is, how much God has, has must have blessed everyone else so much more than you. That's the answer that I care about. It's here in this passage that we all need to, to change our mindset if we truly wish to defeat worry and anxiety, if we wish to defeat those things so that we can shine, we have to make sure that, that our answer, our own individual answer to Jesus' question, that we can respond to him with an emphatic and honest, yes, Lord. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, I am. And I am not because of... of my paychecks or the size of my house or the size of my bank account. I am of more value because Jesus said that I am with his words and with his actions. By both word and by deed, Jesus tells me that I am enough. Not that I'm perfect, not that I'm a finished product, right? By no means. But he's telling me that his offer of eternal life, it is not extended to me based upon how I rank in the hierarchy of this world. It's simply based upon the fact that my creator loves me. And that's enough. We remember again this teaching, it was not given to just Jesus' closest friends. It was not just his close inner circle that was here listening to these words. He wasn't teaching only individuals who were well vetted. He wasn't teaching people who, who already knew well enough that they were of actually more value. He was teaching this to an eclectic group of people who gathered on a hillside. They were people that came from different age groups, different backgrounds, probably primarily Jewish folks, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some Gentiles that snuck in among them. We're told that, that many in the crowd, they came from the Decapolis, which was a very ethnically diverse area. But no matter where they came from, no matter who they were, what they did for a living, how much money they had in their bank account, male, female, rich, or poor, when they came, they all heard the same exact lesson. They all heard the same words spoken to them. It would be foolish for us to assume that everyone in that crowd who gathered on that hillside that day... That That hillside just as comfortably as I can promise you that there are sinners in this church today. But when Jesus looked out over this crowd of people, he told them, stop being anxious. He told them that they were worthy of what he had come to offer. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Your anxiety will not add one day to your life. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all that you do and what you truly need will be provided to you. He says, just do not be anxious anymore, because anxious people will not shine. It's the anxious people who may miss their opportunity to meet Jesus. It's when we are calm. It's when we are quiet. That's when we can silence the world around us. That's when we can see God the most clearly. Pray with me, church.